Please pray with me. Lord, we know that you are perfect love, and you have called us to be a people of love. And that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love tonight, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Lord, I pray that your love would be the motivating, driving truth tonight, and that you would edify your people and equip us to do the work of the ministry. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. Last time we were looking at our first issue in evangelism was the question is, are the heathen lost? And we looked at several scriptures, but primarily Romans chapter 1, and concluded that God's word teaches that yes, they are lost, and that's why we take the gospel to them. After that teaching, I had two uh, souls from our family here, the church family, ask me about what about babies? miscarried babies, uh, stillbirth babies? What about young children who uh, die uh, very young, incapable, really, of trusting the Lord Jesus as Savior? What about them? I believe the Scriptures teach that God's grace through Christ's sacrifice and Christ's mercy are applied by a sovereign God to those precious babies and young children. I want to give you some lines of thinking that I think that scriptures teach this. I believe that these individuals that are incapable of trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior will be in heaven. I should also state that I believe that the severely mentally retarded also would fit into this category of God's mercy and grace. Number one, there is no mention of hell for the infants and the young children who were killed in Egypt during the Exodus. There's also no mention of hell. That's Exodus 1. There's also no mention of hell for the infants and the young children who were killed in Palestine around the time of the Savior's birth when Herod ordered that. Second line of reasoning to believe that the very young and the baby will be in heaven, is that Jesus' tender attention and welcome for children is evident in the New Testament. He said, let the little children come to me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. That's recorded in Mark 10, among other places. And then we know from 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. He's perfect love. Fourth, there really would be no basis for eternal judgment in degree for the infant, the stillborn, the miscarried. Nothing would be written in God's books that will be opened at the great white throne judgment. Turn with me to Revelation 20. There are two judgments we read of in Scripture. One is for believers, for reward, the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. And then there's this judgment at the end of the ages before the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, and every unredeemed person of all the ages, of all the epochs, of all the times of human history 
who did not trust God in faith and received God's provision of grace, whether in the Old Testament or in the New, these will stand before Christ as judge. In Revelation 20, starting at verse 11, these verses ought to sober you and me. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Will you notice that at this future judgment, the white, great white throne judgment, that there is a book, singular, the book of life, and there are books, plural. And the books, plural, are a record of all the transgressions and all the sins of the unbelievers. And so there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Adolf Hitler will have a portion in hell that others may not have because of the deeds of sin that were, are recorded in the books. What I'm submitting to you this evening is that the stillborn, the miscarried, the very, very young child, the severely mentally retarded person, there is nothing written in those books. There is no basis of degree of punishment for these. The next line of reasoning that would lead me to conclude that babies are in heaven is that they are incapable to exercise otherwise, record, otherwise required faith. They're incapable. It's not a heathen situation where God is revealing himself in general revelation through creation, and as they respond to general revelation as heathens, God gives them specific revelation and more light, as he did to Cornelius in Acts, we saw last Sunday night. But these who are incapable intellectually incapable of understanding sin, substitution, and faith, I believe that Christ's sacrifice applies to them. It's credited to their account by a loving and a loving and a accepting Lord Jesus who says, let the little kids come to me. When Jesus was teaching, you may recall, these little children were wanting to come to him and his disciples said, keep those kids the way he's teaching. Jesus said, let the little kids come to me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' love for children. And then we have the Old Testament example of David and Bathsheba's child, baby. You recall that David lusted after Bathsheba, took her to be his wife against the law of God, had intimate relations with her, and there was a baby conceived. And in 2 Samuel we read in 2 Samuel 12 that the baby was gravely ill upon birth. And David fasted and prayed for the child to recover. And the child did not recover. The child went to be with God. And in 2 Samuel 12, starting at verse 22, went to 1 Samuel. 
2 Samuel 12, 22. And he said, David said, after he had learned the baby had died, he washed up after fasting and praying, and he started to proceed with the things that were his responsibilities, and they couldn't understand that. And in verse 22, explain why he did that. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Of course, the answer is no. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Infant death has touched my own family, not Beth and uh, my nuclear family, but my family of origin. I told you before that my sister Janet uh, was born with uh, congenital kidney disease, and she never came home from the hospital after being born, and she went to be with Jesus after 14 days of life. And many of you, if I would ask you to raise your hands, and I won't, but many of you tonight have suffered the loss of a baby or a young, young child. I believe the scriptures that I stand upon would tell you and assure you that that child is with Jesus. I was glad to be asked that question. Now, I want to move on to something else this evening. The first issue in evangelism that we took up was, what about the heathen? Tonight I'd like to take up an issue that perhaps is a little sensitive, but I do not mean to offend in any way, shape, or form. Uh, What about Roman Catholics? Did a little research, and 91% of Bahamians give a religious affiliation when census is taken. 14% of Bahamians... uh, align themselves with the Roman Catholic Church in a population of 377,000 Bahamians, that would be approximately 53,000 Roman Catholics on the islands. And I'm sure many of you love Roman Catholic people. They are in your workplace. They're in your neighborhood. They're your friends. They're your family in some cases, maybe your spouse. Many of my best friends in Canada and the U.S. are Roman Catholics. So I hope you know my heart. My heart is not to bash anyone, but to try to bring the truth before us. Why? So that we'll be equipped to understand what these precious souls believe and how it's different from what we believe, that we could enter into a respectful, kind dialogue. I'm going to share with us tonight some of the differences in the Roman Catholic Church's teaching, and I won't get through everything on your handout tonight by any means, but I just want to start by telling you that the Roman Catholic Church has a different authority. That's how we got Protestantism. There was a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther who protested. That's how we get the name Protestant. He protested certain things in Roman Catholic Church dogma or doctrine that he didn't feel were biblical. You say, what did he oppose? Well, among other things, he opposed uh, divinely revealed knowledge coming to anybody in any church apart from the Bible. He also opposed the idea of a celibate, unmarried, a celibate and exclusive priesthood. 
Martin Luther saw the scriptures teaching that there was a priesthood of all believers, and he protested the Roman church's understanding of the priesthood. He greatly opposed the concept of the Roman church that one could be released from God's punishment either while alive or dead in purgatory by a purchase price of money called indulgences. Luther opposed the notion of the Roman Catholic Church that the popes and the church were supremely authoritative on an equal plane to God. Martin Luther protested, causing the Reformation and the birth of Protestantism, that salvation and heaven could be earned via good works. These are some of the main things that the Roman Catholic monk Martin Luther protested, and as you can imagine, he faced great reprisal from the church. And his reformation, his uh, teaching, as he sought the scriptures, has five alones. We call them five solas, S-O-L-A-S. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Christos, Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so these are the main teachings of the Protestant movement a protest against the Roman Catholic Church for, among other things, the Roman Church's elevation of church tradition on par with Scripture. And so to this day, the Roman Catholic Church has a different authority than the Protestant Church. The second difference I want to highlight with you tonight is a different Bible the Roman Catholic Church shares the 66 Bibles, uh, uh, books of our Bible from Genesis to Revelation, yes, but they have extra books between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Those, as Protestants, we understand were 400 silent years between the Revelation to Malachi and the next revelation to Matthew, we understand as Protestants that God went silent for his own purposes for 400 years. The Roman Catholic Church believes that there were some books written, seven of them, in that period of 400 years that they have grouped together, and they call those books the Apocrypha. And in those seven books of the Roman Catholic Bible, between the Old and the New Testaments, there are some Roman Catholic doctrines that are taught in those seven books that we as Protestants do not recognize as being Scripture. By the way, we do not recognize the seven apocryphal books as being Scripture, among other reasons that uh, they were written centuries after Christ, more than all the other canonical books, they were written late. And they were written by people who didn't have firsthand understanding of Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, and his resurrection. These books of the Apocrypha were also not recognized or claimed to be Scripture for centuries and centuries after Christ. But that being said, 
what teachings are in these seven apocryphal books that our friends in the Roman Catholic Church have in their particular Bible between the Old and the New Testament? Well, the following. Purgatory, praying for the dead, the command to use magic, forgiveness of sins by almsgiving, forgiveness of sins by giving financial offerings to the church, and the offering of money for the sins of the dead. Being able to offer the church money for your beloved departed soul to help cover their sins after they've died. These are Roman Catholic teachings that are found in the apocryphal books. These teachings are not found in the 66 books of the Bible that the Protestant recognizes to be Scripture. I want to share with you a a quote concerning this. It's from the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent convened in A.D. 1563 as a direct response to Martin Luther the monk's protestation against the Roman Church and the birth of the Reformation, the birth of Protestantism. And the Council of Trent met in A.D. 1563. And this is what they said, and I quote, If anyone does not receive these books, meaning the apocryphal seven books, if anyone does not receive these books as sacred and canonical, that means part of the Bible, in their entirety, with all their parts, according to the text usually read in the Catholic Church, and as they are in the ancient Latin Vulgate, let him be anathema, end of quote. Anathema is a fancy way of saying formally cursed by the church. It means to be excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. It means to be damned to hell. And so the Council of Trent was very strong that if you do not believe as a Catholic that those seven books between the Old and the New Testament that teach those particular doctrines I've just shared with you, is if you don't believe that's Scripture and Bible, then you're damned to hell. If you go with me to Revelation chapter 22, we as Protestants have a warning that we understand to be very serious in Revelation uh, 22, 18, and 19. Revelation 22 is the last chapter of the Bible, and verses 18 and 19 are almost the very last verses of the Bible. And it says in Revelation 22, 18, and 19, the following, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now you say, but Pastor Rob, those verses in context are referring to the book of Revelation. Yes, they are. But the book of Revelation chronologically happens to be the last book that God revealed of all the 66. So we're warned by Scripture not to add anything to the 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, or there's serious consequence. So there's a different authority. There is a different Bible. Third, there is a different salvation. The Roman Catholic Church really teaches a works-based salvation. 
They have seven sacraments that the Roman Catholic is to be a part of in order to have a hope of heaven. And the seven sacraments are the following. Baptism, number one. Confirmation, number two. Holy Communion, number three. Confession, number four. Marriage, five. And the Holy Orders, six. And anointing the sick, sometimes called last rites or extreme unction. These are the prescribed components of a Roman Catholic salvation, which are works-based, are they not? There's a slide. Do we have that of Pope John Paul II's funeral? We do. I'm going to show you this slide because there's something rather remarkable that the world may have missed when his casket was being carried through the streets of Rome and the Vatican. What we're going to see on this casket of Pope John Paul II is there was a letter M on the lid of the casket. He asked for that to be put there because he understood that the Virgin Mary, along with the Lord Jesus, were his redeemers. There was an engraved M with a cross on John Paul II, Pope John Paul II's casket lid, that was an M in sort of nestled into the cross to say that Mary and Jesus were his redeemers. And then as the casket was taken further and the televised coverage of his funeral became worldwide, he asked that a, a circle be put over that engraved M so that it would be very clear on television that there was an M circle and the cross for the very same reason I just said. And so... With all due respect, the Roman Catholic Church's salvation is a works-based salvation. Baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, last rites, Mary. The salvation of the Protestant Church is a grace salvation. We quoted Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 this morning, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So we have a different salvation. Fourth, a different authority, a different Bible, a different salvation, a different Jesus. Wait a minute, Pastor Rob, a different Jesus? Yes, a different Jesus. Jesus, in their teaching, is a co-redeemer with his mother Mary. They save in tandem. Mary is called a redemptrix in Latin. She's a co-redeemer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this quote from John Paul II, who was referencing his funeral. He said, quote, in fact, by being assumed into heaven, that is Mary, she has not laid aside the office of salvation, but by the manifold intercession, she continues to obtain for us the grace of eternal salvation. End of quote. The Pope was saying that he believes that even though Mary died and went to heaven, that still does not take away from the fact she's a co-redemptrix with Christ and she is there interceding for the Roman Catholic believer and therefore bringing to that person the grace of eternal salvation. She is a co-redeemer 
with Jesus. To that end, a different Jesus, they would teach that really Jesus is too busy for small things in heaven. So Catholics are told to pray to his mother for the smaller things and go to him for the larger things. Another quote, Pope Leo XIII, quote, Mary is the glorious intermediary. She is the mighty mother of God, end quote. The Pope is saying here that Mary is the go-between between the Roman Catholic believer and God. And if the Roman Catholic believer wants to take something in prayer that isn't big, weighty, he or she ought to pray to Mary, the mother of God, and not to Jesus, the Son of God. And when you think about it, when our friends in the Roman Catholic Church believe that the priest can pray over the host and the cup at communion or mass, they call it, and make it actually the body and the blood of Christ, then really are they not re-crucifying Jesus every mass? A different Jesus. First Timothy. The Protestant understanding of these things is quite different. First Timothy. Chapter 2. Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. That's very clear, is it not? God says there's one mediator between himself and us, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 3.8, 1 Peter 3.8 also speaks to this when it says, actually 1 Peter 3.18, pardon me, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This verse is teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ's crucifixion for your sin was a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And his body and his blood, his body was bruised once, as we remembered at communion this morning, and his blood was shed once because all was required. And when our friends in the Catholic Church believe the priest has turned the host into Jesus' literal body and the wine into Jesus' literal blood, it is different. It is not the same. A different authority, a different Bible, a different salvation, a different Jesus, a different communion, a different remembrance of Jesus. I've alluded to it a moment ago. The difference between Protestant communion and the Lord's Supper, as we observed it this morning, is it's a memorial. 
it's it's a place and a time for two symbols. The symbol of bread to be a symbol, a memorial of Christ's sinless life, and the symbol of grape juice or wine in a cup to be a memorial symbol of Jesus' blood. We do not believe that these are turned into literal body and blood of Christ. We don't. They're symbols. We do not believe in transubstantiation. But the Roman Catholic Church finds that to be a very important belief for their people. That same Council of Trent in A.D. 1563, which convened as a response to Martin Luther and the Reformation, said this, and I quote, anathema, remember that means cursed or damned to hell, anathema, anyone who denies that the host and the cup are truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. We don't believe in transubstantiation. We believe they're memorials. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 11. Why am, I, why am I doing this? Because it has become fashionable in the U.S. I don't know if it's fashionable in the Bahamas yet. It's become fashionable in the U.S. to minimize the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches. And you'll hear, we're the same. We're not the same. 1 Corinthians 11, to see that these symbols of the bread and the wine are symbols of, mem of memory and not literally, magically turned into the actual body and blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, and when he, Jesus, had given thanks and broke it, the unleavened bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is not to say it was literally his body. That's what our Roman Catholic Church friends take from this. This is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. And so we have a different communion in Hebrews 6, we're warned against really trans transubstantiation at communion. You say, really? Yeah, really. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. For in this case, those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's a very uh, needful passage of exegesis and explanation, and I believe it doesn't teach that the true born-again Christian loses salvation, but that's for another evening to look into those parts of those verses. But what it does teach is that we aren't to crucify Jesus Christ over and over again because it puts him to shame. And then still in Hebrews 9, 27, Hebrews 9, 27, inasmuch as it has appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, 28, so Christ also, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. This is saying again that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us was once for all time. It cannot be repeated. It should not be repeated. It's once for all time. And I would submit with humility that the Roman Catholic Mass, believing in transubstantiation, recrucifies Christ every time it is convened. I'm going to stop there, and we're going to pick up, Lord willing, next Sunday night with more differences between the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. But remember, the reason I'm doing this because I see this as an issue in sharing our faith. We have Roman Catholic friends, perhaps family, that we can share lovingly, prayerfully, the differences between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. We're not the same. I'm sorry, but we're not the same. And the people who stood against the Roman Catholic Church's elevation of tradition to the same power as Scripture, or in some cases, Roman Catholic tradition over Scripture, the Martin Luthers and all the Reformers who gave their lives in Martin Luther's train of protest stood against something. They didn't say, well, there's no difference. They didn't say that. Who am I talking about? Well, there's lots. But let me talk about Jerome of Prague. Jerome of Prague was a tall, black-bearded, hot-headed, adventurous reformer in reaction to the Roman Catholic Church in the 1390s. That's before the Reformation. His friend, Jan Hus, also a reformer, had encouraged him to travel to England to study the teachings of John Wycliffe, the English reformer. Jerome of Prague went to Oxford and immersed himself in the works of, of Wycliffe. Returning to Prague, he brought Wycliffe's books back to Hus and the other Czech reformers. Jerome had a restless and adventurous spirit. He loved to travel abroad, spreading the message of reform, but frequently returned to his beloved Prague to reconnect with Hus. He traveled to Jerusalem, Paris, Poland, Lithuania, Heidelberg, Cologne, Vienna, Russia, and Hungary. His ability as an orator and his respect as one of the most able scholars of his day provided him opportunities to address university crowds. He created a common a commotion, excuse me, wherever he went with his fiery condemnation of the corruption within the Catholic Church. He barely escaped each city, always leaving behind enraged university masters and church authorities. When Huss was arrested and brought to Constance in 1414, Jerome promised him that he would come to his aid. Huss wrote to Jerome and warned him not to come. However, the true to his daring spirit, Jerome secretly entered the city on April 4th, 1415. He boldly posted inflammatory signs around the city demanding the right to speak before the council and in his and Huss's defense and requested a pledge of protection. When he was given no assurance of security, he attempted to flee the city. He almost escaped but was captured and thrown into prison. While Jerome was imprisoned in stocks and chains, Huss was burned at the stake as a heretic, remaining faithful to the end. After Huss's death, Jerome recanted all that he had previously proclaimed, expecting thereby to be set free. He confessed loyalty to the Roman Catholic Church and pronounced Wycliffe and Huss to be heretics. 
To his dismay, Jerome was not set free after recantation, but kept in prison for many months. The council believed that, the council believing that not even a recantation should save the heretic from execution pressed for a new trial at which he could be condemned. Meanwhile, Jerome was feeling great remorse over his disloyalty to the Lord. At ensuing trial, Jerome denounced his recantation, saying that he had said those things for fear of death. And he publicly resolved to defend God's truth until death. He demanded a hearing to plead his case, but the council refused to hear his defense. He angrily replied, what iniquity is this? While I have languished for 350 days in the most cruel prison, in stench, squalor, excrements, and chains, lacking all things, you have ever heard my adversaries and slanderers, but me you now refuse to hear even for an hour. For you have already in your minds condemned me as an unworthy man before you could learn what I really am. You're men, not gods, not immortals, but mortals, end of quote. Jerome's impassioned speech impressed a few bystanders, but the council quickly condemned him to death. For his execution, he was made to wear a tall paper hat painted with red devils. Jerome said, quote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he suffered death for me, a most miserable sinner, did wear a crown of thorns upon his head, and I, for his sake, will wear this adorning of derision and blasphemy. End of quote. As he was led to the same place where Huss had been burned to death, Jerome sang hymns in Latin and Czech, continuing to sing as the wood was piled around him. On May 30th, 1416, Jerome of Prague, wearing his paper crown, was burned alive at the stake. King Henry VIII made himself head of the Church of England, separating it from the Roman Catholic Church. This did not indicate a change in doctrine, but merely meant that Henry VIII not the Pope, now control the English church. However, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the ecclesiastical head of the Church of England, was a committed Protestant believer. Cranmer appointed Hugh Latimer as his royal chaplain. Latimer had experienced a dramatic conversion ten years earlier when another minister shared the gospel with him. Archbishop Cranmer appointed Nicholas Ridley as his own personal chaplain. Ridley, unlike Latimer, still espoused the Roman Catholic faith. However, in the following decade, his thinking changed radically. In the late 1530s, the influence of Cranmer and Latimer, then a bishop, was growing. Henry VIII had unknowingly authorized the publishing of Tyndall's English translation of the Bible, and Cranmer was pushing for a more Protestant liturgy. Henry VIII became more dictatorial as he grew older. In 1539, he published his six articles making belief in certain Roman Catholic doctrines obligatory and putting the growing number of Protestants in jeopardy. Latimer had to resign his bishopric because of the six articles. Ridley, whose views were gradually changing, became royal chaplain. Fortunately, after a year, the king suspended enforcement of the six articles. In 1547, Henry VIII died and was succeeded by his nine-year-old son. You a young person here, right? In 1547, King Henry VIII died and was succeeded by his nine-year-old son, a sincere Christian, who became King Edward VI. During Edward's reign, Archbishop Cranmer had great influence, and the liturgy of English churches was changed from Latin to English. 
Ridley, by then a convinced evangelical, became a bishop, and Latimer, no longer a bishop, was actively preaching at least two sermons every Sunday. Unfortunately, Edward died in 1553 and was succeeded by his half-sister, Mary Tudor, a Roman Catholic. She was crowned Mary, Queen Mary I and soon earned her nickname of Bloody Mary. Under Mary, all bishops were replaced by Roman Catholics, and Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley were imprisoned, tried for heresy, and condemned to death. On October 16, 1555, Latimer and Ridley were let out of the prison to be burned at the stake. As the fire was lit, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, and I trust it shall never be put out. End of quote. Cranmer was then degraded, a formal ceremony in which all symbols of his office of archbishop were physically removed from him. Back in prison, Cranmer was told that if he would recant, he might be spared and given the opportunity to heal the divided Church of England. After much pressure, Cranmer formally signed a recantation denouncing Luther as a heretic and affirming the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But Queen Mary I and the Catholic bishops had no intention of sparing Cranmer. They knew that the Reformation seemed to grow stronger with each martyrdom, so their plan was to show the folly of the movement through the collapse of a major leader. They planned to have Cranmer make a public statement of his conversion to Catholicism to show his weakness and then execute him. But Cranmer had the last word. On the appointed day, Cranmer was brought to the platform to speak to the assembled crowd. He confirmed his faith in God and in the Bible, and then to the horror of the church dignitaries, he said, as for the Pope, I refuse him. As for Christ, as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine, end of quote. Amid an uproar, Cranmer was pulled off the platform, but he broke away and ran straight to the stake and stood resolutely to be burned. He put out his hand that signed the recantation that he was so sorry he signed and had them burn it off first. We're not the same. We love Roman Catholics. They're precious in God's sight. We're not the same. Dear Heavenly Father, may the truth of Scripture in history help us to hold to the truth with humility, but with resolute determination. Help us, Lord, to pray and to love and to spend time with Roman Catholic friends and family, to earn a hearing. And Lord, thank you the courage of men like Jerome of Prague and Latimer and Cranmer who paid the supreme cost that we as Protestants could believe your word, claim your salvation through a Christ once crucified, and to know peace with you not based on our efforts or a certain church's teaching but based on your amazing grace. Lord, dismiss us now with joy in our hearts, humility in our hands and feet, and give us opportunity to testify to the truth 
always in love and always for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Have a good evening. Thanks for coming tonight.